Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian promoting the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Arts-Based Community Development Director with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today in the studio, I'm speaking with Monique Davis, Managing Director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange at the Mississippi Museum of Art. Thanks for joining us today, Monique. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Of course. Well, before we dive into the work you're doing at the Museum of Art um, and other parts of your story, let's start at the beginning. So tell me uh, where you grew up and and what your what your childhood was like. Particularly, I'm interested in your experiences with art and creativity. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, during, I would say, the era of Marion Barry. And I don't know if you all know a lot about um Washington, D.C. during the 70s and 80s, and it was very two distinct communities. There was um, an emerging black middle class um, that kind of got professionalized um, by Mayor Barry. So and by the way, then he then created a very loyal constituency. Um, and then there was uh, the downtown, the things that people see on TV, the tourist community, and then all the activity that was generated because of the location of the federal government. And so I grew up in a very protective, um, solid black working class neighborhood and didn't really see people that didn't look like me until we took visiting relatives downtown to the museums. So it was a very supportive environment. Everybody, I mean, like our mayor was black, our city council was black, our librarians were black. And so it gave me a really firm grounding and helped build self-esteem. And um, so I had a, I, I had a lovely protective, insulated um, childhood and didn't really even interact with people other than people that looked like me until I entered the professional environment. How I became involved in the arts, I always wanted to be an artist, but I had two very practical parents who um, grew up during part of the Depression. And so they said, okay, drawing is fine, but you need um, a real job. So they wanted me to be a librarian, an accountant, a doctor, you know, practical parenting advice. And so, um, so I kind of gave up on that dream. And since I was good at math, I said, well, maybe I'll become like what the most boring of all professions, I'll become an accountant. (laughs) So um, just basically because I was good at it, I had aptitude for it. um, And I knew that I could always get a job. And if I ever hit it big, I could learn how to count and manage my own money. Um, Right, right. That totally makes sense. You know, and it's, it is such a shame that, that the arts aren't valued in that way, for, for children at least, in the sense of a profession. I know for me, um, I, my, they would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I would say an artist. And they'd say, well, what's your backup plan? And I said, a musician. And they said, well, what's your backup plan? I said, stand-up comedian. So I think at that point they were like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> she's just going to stay on this path, this particular path. So I can totally relate to that that idea. Um, so you, I know you studied accounting. Is that what you studied when you went to Howard? Yes, that's what I studied at Howard University. 
Um, and then I've always, you know, I've been in show choirs when I was in high school, and I've always done creative things on the side. But, you know, hearing living with two very practical people, <laughs> I have all, I just said, you know, I have to make a living and wanting to move, eventually move out of my parents' house. I had to figure out a way to pay my own bills. So accounting just seemed a natural fit. And that was during the 80s and life was good and money was flowing. <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> so. curious, uh, Howard has such a great reputation. What what drew you there? Oh, so I don't have a sexy explanation for that. My mother worked at the hospital, so I got to go to Howard for free. Okay, well, that's so. a good reason. <laughs> I mean, it's an upstanding institution, so it's not like you you know, had to go somewhere, just right. anywhere for free. I mean, and you, you know, got to go to Howard. Howard experience, what I, I basically was a commuter student, so I didn't necessarily engage, take advantage of that full college experience, which I now encourage my children to do when they are in their college experiences, like go to the games. And I just viewed it as like, I'm here to get my education. I didn't make long-term relationships there. Most of them carried over from high school or people that I'm still friends with. So it's not necessarily something that I would recommend to do, but it was efficient. Right. There you go. (laughs) Well, uh, you mentioned your kids. You have six kids. I have six beautiful human beings ranging from 22 to 12, and one has successfully adulted, (laughs) and he is working as an engineer at Lockheed Martin in Dallas, Texas. Wow. And I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> and you've got another one in college? I have a senior at Tuskegee, uh-huh. and then I have a junior at Rice, and then I have a graduating senior from Murrah, a sophomore at Murrah, and then a little, the last one is at Bailey in middle school. And so I shared this story uh, when we were at a meeting together the other day of meeting you, and I have such a distinct picture in my mind. We were both volunteering at something called Figment, which is like an interactive arts mm-hmm. festival in Jackson. And I shared with you that my memory of meeting you, whether it's true or not, is of your entire family all on one golf cart together. You either had your littlest in your belly or in your lap. <laughs> that is true. We were the water patrol for Figment. And actually, that's you know that was one of the ways that we began to connect to the arts community here was to volunteer at events, and I just thought that the idea of a participatory festival that didn't cost anything and encouraged you to bring your whole self to that event was such a interesting and compelling idea for Jackson, and um, I was really glad to be a part of that. Yeah, it was a great experience to really invite people to create in their own way, mm-hmm. but also in a way that the community can interact in their own way. I yeah. mean, that was so nice to me that it was it was so open. It wasn't just like, come listen to music. It was come participate, participate. in the arts, you know. Yeah, I, I still get sad uh, when I drive past the Coca-Cola plant and see it just has such potential, and I see the, the state of disrepair it's in. So I'm hoping that we can think of some innovative way to reclaim that space. I absolutely agree. So um, so we, we left you um, in D.C. and Howard. So mm-hmm. tell me about your journey to Jackson. Uh, well— I met my husband, and we, when we started dating, I, this might have been a wife test. So <laughs> we would drive to Jackson from D.C., which is about 18 hours, mm-hmm. to visit his grandmother um, and his family here. And then we would 
from there drive to Birmingham or the reverse. I can't remember because both sets of relatives were there. And I said, oh, isn't this interesting? I think I'll eventually will want to move to the South. Um, and so we got married, started having babies. And uh, then I said he had the opportunity to retire early from Verizon. And we thought maybe that would be the time to really move. And at that time, D.C. was getting increasingly violent because the crack epidemic hit really hard, especially for young black men. We just didn't feel like it might be the ideal place to raise a large family. And then, to be honest, so I was juggling between two families, sides of the extended family, and the Jackson family just seemed like a family that I could, that dynamic that I could manage a little easier than the mm-hmm. Birmingham family. And Jackson had a health food store and a really cute coffee shop. Um, and uh, it wasn't as urban as Birmingham. And so Jackson won because I figured I could I could navigate it a lot more mm-hmm. easily with um, six kids and a kid on my chest. Now, when you moved here, was the idea of Lumpen's Barbecue a foregone conclusion, or is that something that came um, when you got here? Well, this was one of the, the struggles of, um, of our decision to move. I grew up in the barbecue business, um, and so I knew how hard it was. But my wonderful husband thought it would be a great way to get to know a new city to open a business. So it was more of his idea, and I was a reluctant but supportive partner. Well, as a as a vegetarian, I frequented the barbecue because of you guys. So, you know, I bring it up only to say that to me that that time in 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 your life in your lives that um where you were running the Lumpkins was spoke to me so much more about community and opportunity to be a place where people could come or have conversations and seemed to be such the impetus. I mean, one of the other early times you and I interacted was you guys provided barbecue to an event that I was holding that was a fundraiser for um, low-income children Mm -hmm. and educational purposes. And that, to me, again, I don't even eat meat. (laughs) And I, I, you know, spread the word of the work you guys were doing in a different way. And that was one of the gifts of the business. And even though it's not a choice that I would have consciously made, sometimes things happen and we get what we need, not necessarily what we want. Mm -hmm. And so the business just connected us to the community in ways that just moving here would not have done. And it also made us both, well, we're both aggressive participators in different ways, but it made us both really fearless Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I can't say I would have done otherwise. Um, And I still, most of my, the customers that came like you and Wendy and Kimberly Griffin are still really close friends to this day. So that, that business cemented and helped create relationships that still kind of feed me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's the, that's the memory that I take away Mm -hmm. from that time. So I know you're an artist. I know you draw, but you also sing. Is that right? You do, I know he's, you're a lover of music. I am a lover of music. I would not. I would say that I am not a soloist necessarily. I am a 
enthusiastic song leader. Oh, wonderful. And so I like to start meetings, especially community meetings, with a simple songs because I think that's a way to build instant community in a place. And people say they can't sing. And I say, everybody can sing. I think, you know, I just think that's a, an excuse we give ourselves not to engage. So what inspires you and what kind of drawings do you tend towards? I know it's probably changed over time. But. Um, It has changed over time. I think now it's mostly about having fun and invoking a sense of kind of, I like to say, a combination of the silly and the sacred. And so just people that are happy and just living life. I mean, we, are, we have to counteract kind of this negative energy that's in the air. Um, and some sometimes some of it wants to call people to maybe a perspective change or but in a subtle way. Not something necessarily that's in your face. But it's cartoon based, pen and ink markers, um, typically small. Mm-hmm. I do have a website. Would you like to know what I it is? I would love to know. It's www.loveluvmagic.com. Oh, great. And there they can see mostly your, your drawings. They can see all my drawings. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm incubating a children's book in my mind. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to someone, and we were talking about particularly, um, I think, parents. But, but, but anytime you kind of have to put art to the side that, you know, this artist spirit, you're still kind of ruminating, 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 right, in your mind and working on it in your mind, even if you don't put pen to paper. And so when you finally do, it sometimes get the wonderful thing is it sometimes comes out more fully formed than, you know, had you been chopping away at it. And I mean, you know, we each have our own process to get to a product, but it's encouraging for me when I don't have the time to get in my painting studio that I'm still can kind of sketch or think or put things together. That is really affirming that you said that because I feel often feel like, oh, I should be drawing every day. And then with this new role that my brain capacity is just kind of at the max. And mm-hmm. so I know that I can do it. I just can't do it right now. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. We're so we're so quick to say, well, I can't do it. So it's it's as though it's not growing. But we know we're thinking, mm-hmm. we know we're, you know, making notes in a notepad or, again, just formulating something. And it's, to me, the most encouraging is when all of a sudden all that ruminating kind of sparks something and you've, you, it's like it pieced together. You've never got to put it down, but it's ready to go. And then I always say I love painting because it, it feels like... Um, it's coming right out of my hands. Like mm-hmm. whatever I am trying to express needs to have some tactile side to it. And I feel like I can think and then put it out <laughs> and put it on paper. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative people across Mississippi. Today I'm talking with Monique Davis, Managing Director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange at the Mississippi Museum of Art. So, Monique, I know before you started your current position, you've been at the Museum of Art um, for a while. Mm -hmm. So tell us about um, your time there and, and how you have spent that time up until now. I started off as the membership director, working closely with the participation director. And so I was responsible for connecting with members and the administrative process of sending out renewal notices, um, 
getting members excited about upcoming programming, communicating with them, figuring out um, the database and just kind of the pushing that machine along and then also thinking about innovative ways to continue to engage and bring the community more into the life of the museum. Okay. And you had a role in uh, Third Thursdays, is that right? Initially, I did not okay. have a role in Third Thursday, but when my uh, when the participation director got promoted to the um, resource officer position, then I assumed her position, which was responsible for all of the kind of outward-facing programs for Third okay. Thursdays, Art and Coffee, Collectors Club, and then also keeping the wheels of the museum turning as it relates to membership and collecting data and analyzing membership trends and um, what that looked like. And making sure, of course, the visitor has a impactful, satisfying experience. So how long have you been at the museum total now? It is about three and a half years. Okay. And so um, tell us about your current role, your new role, as Managing Director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange. And for our listeners who don't know, if you'll tell us what that is. So the Center and Art for Public Ex- the Center for Art and Public Exchange is a Kellogg funded grant initiative that uses art as a way to have courageous and brave conversations about social justice, equity and race. And it has three core values: transparency, truth, Oh my goodness! I just had a brain freeze, and there's another one. I'm sure we'll give the we'll give more information for people to find. There's more information on the website. But my um, predecessor, Julian Rankin, was the initial managing director of the Center of Art and Public Exchange, and just did a whole lot of work in uh, creating the infrastructure and building relationships. Um, and meeting artists and just making sure that the center had a solid foundation and footing. Um, And so he began to have meetings for our artist residency program, which is statewide, which will be launching within the next month uh, to find out what local communities wanted, what opportunities there were. So he just created this web of um, possibilities. And I'm very grateful and thankful to him for that because it makes picking up the mantle and continuing the work a lot easier. So um, in addition to artist residencies, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the things that CAPE does or what they offer for people in Mississippi? Uh, CAPE is also... An experiment. It's an experiment too. So we are cre- co-creating with the community what this um, entity is going to be. So we are in the beginning process of a com- convening a community advisory council, which is going to rep- be comprised of influencers in the community and typically um, underrepresented communities. Because we know that we, our membership doesn't necessarily reflect the community where we sit, and we're fully aware of that. But we want to operationalize these group of people to get them to help us make programming decisions um, and just other advice they can give us on what would be relevant to them. We also have a 
Innovation Lab, which is really exciting, and it allows us to get feedback from visitors about questions they have and kind of expose the curatorial process. So now we're creating, getting people to help us create labels and asking questions like, what do you want to know about this artist? Um, what does this piece speak to you? And getting feedback. So we're really excited about that. And that's on view now. And um, the first piece we're displaying is a Titus Kafar piece. I don't know if you know a lot about this artist, but he just won the MacArthur Genius Grant. And he does a lot of work with kind of juxtaposing traditional European art forms with... Um, like an opposing narrative. So imagine like a somebody in the 17th century, like George Washington, but behind George Washington is maybe an image of the slave that he owned peeking from behind in this cutout. And then a piece of the canvas is kind of flipped over. So that's kind of the aesthetic of the piece that's on display now. And people are contributing questions actually on the wall next to the piece. So I would encourage everybody to come out and come see that because it's we are really trying to figure out what people want and to deepen people's experiences with um, visual arts. And is the, is the Jeffrey Gibson um, exhibit part of this initiative? So Jeffrey Gibson, so the artist in residency part of Jeffrey Gibson is part of the initiative. And that was um, an effort to, Jeffrey wanted to build relationships in our LGBTQ community and um, explore just what their needs are, ways for them to be seen. And because he deals with those issues a lot through his work, that, that community is really important to him. He'll be here Saturday, November the 3rd. Oh, fantastic. Well, I love the idea of the Innovation Lab, I mean, connecting to people. And, you know, without getting into kind of the technical side of this, I know you and I have a common interest um, with an artist named Liz Lerman and her process. So her process, in short, is called the critical response process. And um, you and I could talk about this for for forever, and we plan to. Um, But I'm just curious, personally, how what's been your experience with with that process and uh, and tell our listeners a little bit about what that is, because to me, that relates to people engaging with art at the museum in a in a new way. So Liz Lerman was a dance performer and she created a process initially as a way to respond to perform dance performances um, to provide feed generative and constructive feedback because oftentimes feedback is viewed as criticism and people are uncomfortable receiving it and people are uncomfortable giving it. And so she came, she created this methodology of a way to do that that involves um, curious questioning. So affirmations come first. So people state what resonated with them about the piece, what they enjoyed. And then the second phase is the artist gets to ask specific questions of the audience. Um, And then the audience gets to ask neutral questions of the artist. And this is a place where people often have, I think it's the most challenging for people because 
asking a neutral question and not leading to the answer that you want the artist to give you. It's a tricky thing, but really good and also has applications for parenting, by the way, to ask a neutral question. And so you can lean with, well, I'm curious about why is a great kind of lead off or pretext to a neutral question. And then it ends with an expression of opinion and and the artist also has the power to say, I don't want to hear your opinion. So the thing that I like about that, especially if the work is developing, the audience member asks, I have an opinion about this and this. Would you like to hear it? And then the artist is, has agency and he can control. Yes, I want to hear it or no. You know, I, I'm not ready to hear that right now. And so for me, that just kind of brings that process in full circle and it gives the the artist some power to control the amount of information that they're receiving from the audience. And it also gives the audience uh, an opportunity to provide feedback. And so everybody feels affirmed after the process and like they were heard instead of having the artist feel like, oh, they, they didn't like it and taking it personally. And the thing is to help the artist evolve to the next stage of whatever that work is going to be. I think that... Um I've been thinking a lot about how a lot of people don't self-identify as artists unless they, you know, have done that either professionally, even people who do it in their spare time sometimes don't identify as that. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people about uh, we're all creative in some way. We might not self-identify as artists, but we all can tap into that creativity, yet we, I think, are unsure sometimes about, like, the rules around the dialogue of art, particularly visual art. Um and in a setting like a museum, it's it seems to me as though people struggle with how they are supposed to, quote unquote, interact with the art. And this is I like this process and the Innovation Lab and other things you guys are doing because it it feels like it's guiding the process, um, but in a way that feels comfortable for people at whatever level they're at. So that's really that's really interesting to me. So describe for me. Um, what people might experience coming to a CAPE event? Well, it depends on what the artwork is going to be, but there will always be some opportunity for dialogue and learning with the community members that are in the space. And then art is the center of the conversation. So there will always be some type of close looking. And close looking just means like looking at the object for an extended period of time. You know, typical visitor behavior in a museum is to kind of scan, maybe not even stand for 30 seconds in front of an object, but we encourage people to just stand and look at an object at least for a minute and then to ask leading questions. And then they start to, and as you do that for iteration after iteration, people go deeper and deeper. And then that's kind of when the learning begins because people kind of riff off of each other's answer. I mean, it's like, I call it art church. It's just, it feeds me every time. It's just a wonderful thing to be in space where people are listening to each other, processing the art and then processing each other's responses. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, tell us... um both the website and how people can be best involved um, if they want to get more involved with, with the initiative that we're talking about. So you go to the Mississippi Museum of Art website, and then there's a CAPE tab on the website. And 
there are many ways to be involved. Monetarily is always a good one. And we take donations as small as $1 to help the work continue. And there's a tab on the website to donate. Uh, but come and participate. Just join. We have Art and Coffee the first Saturday of every month, which is kind of a mini extension of CAPE where we bring in local community members. Oh, Melody, you have oh, to do yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Um, <laughs> put me on the spot there. No, I'd be more than happy to be involved. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative people living in Mississippi. Today, I'm speaking with Monique Davis, Managing Director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange at the Mississippi Museum of Art. Thanks again for joining us, Monique. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So I want to, um, we, we've been talking about your work uh, with Center for Art and Public Exchange. And I know that um, you and I are both very passionate about um public meetings and community meetings and, and getting voices to the table. Um, and and, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the intersections of social activism and creativity and your experience in that and kind of what motivates you to seek work in that, in that area. Well, I think art... And all forms of art, just not visual art, has the way has a way to touch people and move people to action that other f- forms don't. And because I am an artist, I feel comfortable in that medium that I find that um, as a way to spur people to what I think are injustices, that that's a way to help people come in join or support a common cause. And so I think my initial foray into that and Jackson probably really started at Lumpkins when we used to host the Southern Poverty Law Center meetings there. And the Youth Hip Hop Summit was kind of born in that space. And just seeing the power of young people strategizing and creating their own agendas and doing their own programming uh, just really kind of reignited the fire in me that, you know, hey, this is possible and a lot of people can do really mighty things. And then Figment just kind of re-energized me and then I got to know a whole different community of artists. And then I met mm-hmm. our wonderful dear friend Daniel Johnson who was in social practice art and just began to learn new ways of engaging and moving people in helping people recognize our shared humanity. So at the heart of love is really at the heart of what I do Mm. um, as an artist to help people see that we are all worthy of that. um, And that love is the only thing that's going to save us really. Wow. And I, uh, I, I, I think a lot about just bringing out using art as a tool, not the, the only tool, but one of the tools in our toolbox to, help bring out the silent voices, you know, help people um, engage with their community, but also have their voice be heard um, in a way that feels safe and in a way where they feel that they're able to express themselves in some way. I think you um, you share that, that sentiment. I think art is such an amazing way um, to do that. Um, so I want to talk to you about um, an organization called Alternate Roots. Um, and for people who aren't familiar, can you just kind of give an overview of what what this organization does and the area it covers? 
So Alternate Roots is a 40-year-old organization that has been in the trenches supporting Southern artists, and um, and its mission is uh, supporting artists at the intersection of arts and social justice. And what that means is that it gives artists grants to do events or to create installations that are community-based and that reflect a social justice issue. So we have artists working in New Orleans that are celebrating the, it's called a buck jumping, which was just a documentary film celebrating that cult, that Mardi Gras culture. We've had people working at Standing Rock. We have people on the Gulf Coast dealing with environmental impacts and making films. And so we meet in the mountains the second week of August every year, and we strategize, we retreat, we re-energize, we inspire each other to go back out into the world and shift the world with art to, to move perspectives. To, and it's all rooted in Southern culture. What are some of the most memorable experiences you've had from either one of those gatherings or um, something, a, a project that you've heard about? I'd, I'd just like to hear something that's kind of stood out in your mind. I think for me, some of the most interesting work that happens is learning other people's perspectives. Because me, I'm a very story-based person. Um, and so hearing people's stories and how they translate that, whether it's pain into healing or figuring out how they um, mutate that into a work and how collaborations are born. So it's not necessarily a, um, a specific incident. It's more of a feeling of deepening connections with a very large community of people that are deeply committed to this work. And Alternative Roots has been in conversation about oppression and equity and inclusion and injustice. And I, I, I typically don't like to say the negative words. So I'm always trying to figure out what the positive opposite of that. So we would say we're, we celebrate inclusion, recognizing that we don't have that. And some often we have difficult conversations about that, but we're all committed to continuing the conversation. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts about the organization. A lot of the work that, that I'm doing right now is um, on asset-based um, community development. And it's that same idea of kind of starting from the positive, starting from what you do have. Yes, we can recognize where the gaps or barriers are and that they exist. We're not negating that those exist, but really trying to get people to start thinking about the things that they have and, and, and moving kind of to the next step from that. Um, so what um, what role do you now serve in? I know you're in I am the um, board chair of Alternate Roots. And so I'm very honored and humbled to serve in that capacity. Uh, and so we are getting ready to embark on our next phase of our strategic planning process. We just have hired a new executive director because Carlton Turner who was formerly the ex executive director, now has a production company in Utica, Mississippi. And so we are very happy for him. He's getting to spend more time with his family. Um, and so it was time for Roots. And that's one of the responsibilities of a board is mm -hmm. to hire a new ED. And we're very 
happy with Michelle Ramos. She's an excellent position. Uh, she is a PhD. She's a lawyer. Uh, and she just has a unique skill set that I think is going to be an asset to the organization. It's always exciting when a new executive director comes on board, even when you have great respect for the work of the past. Um, it gives a new energy, in a way, I think, to an organization going forward. So I'm glad to hear that the strategic planning process is, is kind of married to that change so that she can also kind of have a voice in exactly. you know, what it and looks like. Exactly, and that's why we delayed, the, we delayed starting another plan until after she was on board because the organization is under her leadership now, and we wanted her to be able to inform how this next three- to five-year plan rolls out. Right, and with her strengths and passions. Right. And, um, and I know that Roots is a membership organization, so um, so I'm sure there are layers of challenge in that as well in, you know, making sure that, that other people have a voice in that decision. I can only imagine a large membership organization doing a strategic plan. I mean, those are two, two, two wonderful things that could, could, I could see that intersection being a little tough. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that because one of the things that Roots does is a participatory democracy. So if you are a voting member, you are a member of the board. And so you really do have voice and uh, agency over what the strategic plan looks like. That's the purpose of the annual meeting. We, we go over budgets. I mean, artists can count money. I mean, it is a myth. And artists don't have to starve. I mean, we do have business acumen. So you we, are living proof of that. <laughs> you're <know>, accounting. <laughs> right. And so we go over financial statements. We go over a work plan. We go over how our strategic plan aligns with the goals and what we accomplished and what we didn't accomplish um, and how that aligns with our overall vision. And I think it's, a real, it's really instructive for our members who are working in the field. And some of them... And actually, we invite our funders, which is a mm. radical practice sometimes for some organizations to do. But we want to be really radically transparent. And this is how we run. The, and these are our values. So what, um, what brought you to the organization or how did you become familiar with it? Daniel Johnson <laughs> mentioned that he was hanging out in the mountains making art with a bunch of cool people and that I should come. And then our other dear mutual friend, Wendy Schenefeld, uh-huh. also mentioned, she said, that's your tribe. And I said, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to get up there. And then the rest is history. <laughs> because I'm an aggressive participator, I find myself going to a member, to treasurer, to board chair. I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> It seems that certain personalities, that tends to be a pattern um, in life. And over-volunteerer is what I call yeah, myself. Over, yes, yeah. I'm an over-volunteerer. Yes, because yes. we want to help and then we see opportunity and those yes. two things combined. Oh, those are good words. Yeah. Um, so I know that Alternate Roots has an exciting um, event coming up on November 8th through 11th, um, Roots Weekend Jackson. Tell me a little bit about what that's going to look like. Oh, it's going to be talking about place and tradition. Uh, we have da- actually mm-hmm. our mutual friend Daniel Johnson <laughs> is kind of our community organizer, our on the ground person because he has such deep relationships with the arts community here. They'll be spending time at Ann Gallery and Offbeat. There'll be poetry, um, and it'll be just a mini taste of what a larger roots experience is um 
Wendy Schenefelt, who is also the program officer at Roots, program manager, uh, kind of orchestrated this wonderful experience. And Rooters are going to be coming from New Orleans and Birmingham and from the neighboring states to experience this with us. So I'm very excited to to be able to show off my hometown. Well, my adopted hometown. You adopted mine, mine as well, my adopted hometown. So I typically wouldn't read this, but um, I was so uh, inspired by the theme of this year. So I wanted to read that the theme of Roots Week in Jackson is renew, digging into what it takes to envision and enact a true people's democracy, one where active, creative community members work together, building collective strategies that allow equity and justice justice to thrive. Um, I am um, thrilled and honored to be speaking at this um, weekend as well. And I'm going to be talking about the public participation um, in public meetings. So something that, again, we we both um, are are interested in in that dialogue. Um, So walk me through um, just real briefly what people can expect from the weekend. I know there's a field trip involved. Yeah, there is a field trip going to Utica. So Carlton gets to show off. He is um, developing uh, an artist space. And one of our the artists in residence is uh, Leanna Ambrose Murray, who's also a member of Roots and a graduate of Harvard. And she's going to be teaching arts classes and developing programming. There's a food, a social justice food component involved um, during this experience, but I think primarily it's a way for Carlton to kind of highlight um, the importance of agriculture production, how justice relates to that, and archiving their community stories. So while I don't have a specific detailed agenda, I give you overarching broad themes of what's going to happen. But uh, participants will be there all day. And it's the people to – so then there'll be kind of a a juxtaposition of what urban Mississippi looks like or a mini urban in Jackson and then a more um, – not urban. Mm-hmm. More, I, more rural. Rural, yeah. rural. Rural. That's a hard radio word. <laughs> well, um, I want people to be able to uh, find some more information. So the website for Roots Weekend Jackson, you can find information about the upcoming event and the organization itself at alternateroots.org. So I just want to thank you so much, Monique, for being part of this conversation. And thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. If you missed part of this interview or want to listen again, go to mpbonline.org backslash Mississippi Arts Hour. And be sure to tune in each week for the Mississippi Arts Hour, a co-production of MPB Radio and the Mississippi Arts Commission.